Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody listening wherever and whenever this podcast finds you. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to the Did You Know podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Nick Carter and it was a very interesting conversation. We kind of kind of freestyled a bit about a bunch of different topics, mainly about his latest medium post called A Most Peaceful Revolution and uh, a lot of different topics around Bitcoin and, um, you know, just kind of the, these, uh, these unique traits to Bitcoin that you don't find in, in other altcoins and uh, quite a few other topics as well. I think you guys are going to really, really enjoy this. So first thing I would ask is uh, if you could go to iTunes and leave a five star and a written review that would help immensely. If you also want to save on a bunch of different Bitcoin related products, go to supportmypodcast.com. There you'll find ways to support the podcast, but also if you click on listener supporter discount button, right as you come to the website, you'll get uh, access um, to uh, the website and get uh, savings on things like Tracer, Keep Keys, and a bunch of other different things. So I'm going to be adding new stuff as it comes. Um, I would ask that you uh, sign up for the email list, and that's how you get access to that. So it's absolutely free. I don't sell any of your information, and I just send out emails only occasionally uh, just to kind of let you know what's going on with the podcast and uh, when new discounts come. And also, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit real quick about eToro. They are a trusted smart trading platform that's over 12 years old. They conduct about a trillion dollars in trading annually. That's that's a lot. Uh, they offer some really cool, innovative tools, advanced charting features, and it helps you to be the best trader that you can be. U.S. customers can now trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent low fees. And if you're new to trading, while you're learning, it's it's a really cool thing because you can actually practice strategies with their virtual trading tool. They give you basically 100,000 fake virtual dollars that you can practice various strategies with and you can see how they'd actually react in a real trading environment. So before you actually test out different theories and, and, and trading strategies, you can test them out there. Um, so head over uh, to didyouknowcrypto.com slash eToro. That's E-T-O-R-O. It'll help you, um, uh, go to the, you'll go to their website, you can sign up. It'll help them know that you came from me. But also, once you sign up through that link, you get 50 bucks for free, subject to some terms and conditions. You have a minimum deposit that you have to put in there. So head over to didyouknowcrypto.com slash eToro. That's E-T-O-R-O. And lastly, I'd like to thank you, the listeners. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I see the numbers have been rising um, over the month, and uh, I, I really appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to listen to me. So please reach out on social media. Uh, go to digitalcrypto.com, and you can find all of my social media links. Reach out. Feel free to ask me questions. Just contact me. My DMs are open. All that kind of good stuff. So enjoy the show. I'd like to welcome Nick Carter, co-founder of Castle Island Ventures and CoinMetrics.io. He previously worked at Fidelity as their first Bitcoin and crypto asset analyst. He's also a prolific writer and speaker. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, I loved your most recent article that was entitled The Most Peaceful Revolution. But before that, I wanted to ask you a question that I think is kind of unfairly tagged as being cliche, because I think it is actually the most important question 
um, that we have in in Bitcoin, and that and that is what is Bitcoin. Dude, I wish people would ask me that more, man. Um, you know, I was like, actually, I was prepping for Pomp's podcast, and I was certain that he was going to ask me that, and I was super disappointed when he didn't. And uh, so I've been waiting for someone to ask me what Bitcoin is. Yeah, I think I think too many people kind of feel like, well, they get asked that, and now it's it's seen as cliche, but it it's it's very um, interesting to see people from different walks of life how they view Bitcoin, and also I think it it's very uh, it's a it's a good way to understand a person in this space on how they view it because it does vary from from person to person and and just depending on their life experience and and where they're at in this journey right now. So I know I am often disappointed by people that will give some like cliched, like two word answer um, to that question, because it's actually the most important question in the whole industry, because it's like, you know, like the, like, I'm just thinking back to my, uh, my like metaphysics 101 courses in, uh, in school. And, and the question was like, were uh, were numbers were they invented or were they discovered? You know, was mathematics invented or discovered? And I think the the you could actually kind of make the case or ask that same question of Bitcoin. Like, it to me it seems almost like an alien system that we're just still discovering the ramifications of, and we're trying to wrap our heads around it still. Uh, so I, I I call it the ontology of Bitcoin. I've been trying to work on an article about it for over a year now, which I haven't uh, finished. But I I do think it's the most uh, interesting question that actually exists in the whole industry right now. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sorry. Maybe I'll, 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 so I I have sort of well-developed thoughts on it, so I can give you an answer. Yeah, no, take as, take as much time as you need, because I think that, um, I, I also think that the, just, I understand when you're talking to kind of a, depends on your audience, right? So if you're on, on a show where they don't know anything about Bitcoin, it, you know, it, it's easier to just kind of give a very generic answer of it just being, you know, a ledger or something like a decentralized ledger of, of blah, 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 blah. Right. But I, um, I really interested to, to hear kind of a, uh, your, your kind of in-depth take on it. So um, let me see. I formulated an answer in my head a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was trying to um, be as um, as specific as possible, but also without too much complexity. So my take on what Bitcoin is, um, it's I think it's two things in one. So the first thing is a um, a means for uh, conveying uh, value through a communications medium. Um, and then the other thing that it is as well is a, a new form of um, property registry, um, uh, which is uh, not dependent on um, uh, the state or force um, for those property rights uh, to be enforced. Um, and in particular, uh, Bitcoin is the unbroken uh, registry uh, initiated by Satoshi in 2009. Um, but it's easy to imagine an alternative world where Satoshi 
uh, specified the protocol, you know, the first part, um, and then never initiated the registry, you know, never um, started mining, you know, um, and, and at that point, Bitcoin would have been only the first thing. And I think that's important because um, on the one hand, it's quote unquote, just value conveyance technology. You know, it's just, um, you know, a, a software to move money around on the internet. But on the other hand, it's also, and the thing that's very special about it, in my opinion, is that it's a very fair system, which was initiated under the best possible circumstances, you know, 10 years ago and has persisted to this day. And so the system, um, the, the protocol it should be disentangled from the kind of the frontier like, um, you, you know, new property registry, which has been established um, over the last decade and like billions of value has been poured into it uh, and, you know, is considered very, um, uh, you know, to have a lot of credibility and to be secure. So I think basically long-winded way of saying, I think it's two things at once. And when people talk about what Bitcoin is, they do a really bad job of disentangling the two. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, I mean, I actually I struggle myself to try to, try to ex explain it because it, it you know on the face of it, for people that are you know kind of outside and just coming in you think that it would be something very simple to explain you know just like you know w what is twitter it, well you know it's a social media website where people can you know in a, in a short amount of characters you know convey their ideas and be able to interact with people and you know it's spread news fast and all that kind of stuff where with bitcoin it's a much more it's a much more I don't. I know it's a very deep, and I think we're we're still discovering what it what it means and the kind of the questions that its very existence kind of bring to the conversation about a, a much larger question. Um, as, as far as for you know what what is actually needed in society as far as for you know what's what's needed to be centralized and what doesn't need to be uh, centralized or or as a um, better way, I guess, is to that it, it takes away the excuse for the need for centralization for a lot of things, right? So, you know, we have to have X in place because that's the only way to, you know, to be a, an arbiter, like you said, of, of property yeah. rights. So the only ones that can do that. Have you listened to Max Hillebrand's kind of explanation on that, um, where he kind of I'm talks actually not about familiar it? With that. Oh, okay. And he, he was it was a very interesting concept that, that I've been thinking about more. I've been trying to get him on to talk to uh, in, in more depth on it, but his was that Bitcoin itself is not really property and that you just kind of occult the knowledge of the, of the private key. And that as long as you are a good steward of that knowledge, it remains yours. But if you're a bad steward of it, right. Um, like the Ethereum, uh, while back where the, um, a bunch of people using the private key of one in Ethereum, yeah, um, and and they were getting their you know their value stolen out of that. Where it it was kind of an interesting concept. I don't necessarily one hundred percent agree with it, in that I do think of Bitcoin as 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 being uh you know like you you have that that property right um that is verified, and but the the concept of of occulting the knowledge um in in terms of the religious connotations of Bitcoin was was interesting to me.
I can see both ways. I I I think of Bitcoin uh, literally as as property uh, in the most uh, tangible and literal sense. Um, I do like stuff like multisig and poor entropy in key generation definitely uh, complicates that. Uh, but I I imagine like like ultimately the UTXO side is just a list of of who owns what, right? Of of like which uh, keys can claim ownership over uh, which UTXOs, right? So, and then at, at, at the most abstract level, it's literally a list of, of what, uh, you know, what entities are able to claim ownership over the units of the system. So to me, like the best analogy for that is like a new frontier, like, um, you know, like a new continent was discovered and we've just started to colonize it and build our homesteads on it and start like improving them. That's how I think about Bitcoin, the uh, the property system, at least. In your article, you um, that I mentioned earlier, a, a most peaceful revolution, you criticize altcoiners uh, less for anything that's you know, specifically kind of tech or economic related, but kind of their lack of conviction and dedication and kind of this metagame that Bitcoin is fighting in. Do, do you mind explaining that kind of more in depth of, of the concept that, that you're getting at there? Yeah, that's actually the most important takeaway uh, from the article. That was um, the whole article um, emerged from a single sentence, which sprang into my head as I was walking my, my Shih Tzu puppy. Um, and the sentence was the one that begins with the great sin of altcoiners uh, yada yada. I don't exactly remember what I said, uh, <laughs> but the the point is that they thought they were playing one game, but they're playing a different game. So they didn't even realize what the rules of the game were. They thought they were playing checkers, but the game was chess, basically. Um, so to them, you know, to the vast vast majority of people that I know that experiment with altcoins. Uh, the justification is always like, look, we're just, um, this is permissionless innovation. Uh, we're just tinkering around, you know, um, maybe we'll invent a better system for, um, you know, proof of work, proof of stake, a better algorithm. Maybe we'll invent some better cryptography and it should logically follow that better tech yields a better system and that so that there, there would be some uh, deterministic outcome. If you create better tech, then you create a better money and you'd get more users and then your thing would outcompete Bitcoin, you know? And like literally name any coin and I can tell you um, how, uh, how their narrative goes, that they would um, succeed Bitcoin as the, the number one, you know, virtual currency. Like, like name a coin and I'll tell you what their predominant narrative is. Uh, we'll just go with uh, Litecoin. Yeah, so Litecoin, classic example. Uh, it initially, actually, people don't know this today, but Litecoin back in 2012 um, had a, um, they were committed to being ASIC resistant because uh, the, the narrative back then was that ASICs introduced dangerous concentration. And so they had the script algorithm for proof of work. And the idea was that uh, it would, be more memory hard and that ASICs wouldn't emerge. And so it'd be much more fair and it would win out. And then now it's more 
Uh, I mean, it's amazing that there are people that still have faith in Litecoin, but uh, after ASICs were inevitably created for script, uh, the narrative was more uh, that it's just slightly faster. And so it would be a better user experience and it would win out for payments with the idea that payments are the key function that leads to a cryptocurrency having success and credibility. Um, so, so the point is that virtually all altcoins are impregnated with this belief that superior technical features, you know, marginal technical innovations are what cause a, uh, you know, a currency or virtual commodity to win out against all the others. And the point I'm making in the article is that that's not the case, that um, it could be the case that the winning cryptocurrency, which I think the one in absolute pole position here is Bitcoin, is vastly inferior along all the technical uh, elements. And that uh, most of the, the claimed enhancements come at the expense of some really critical features. Um, and like not only that, but the, the people that are creating these alternative systems have n no clue what the preconditions are for creating a valid and a credible monetary system. Uh, and they, they gave the important stuff no thought, and they gave the much less critical stuff a lot of thought. So they had it completely backwards. And so far, I haven't seen any um, developers or leadership of any alternative coins to Bitcoin uh, giving sufficient thought to the important stuff. And I've been a little vague about what I think that is, but I think it's really the legitimacy endowing factors or the credibility endowing factors. Uh, and so that's really basic stuff, like um, how are the coins distributed? And I think... If you had a, um, a pre-sale or an ICO, you are surrendering your legitimacy um, on an a priori basis. Like you, 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 you lost before the race even began, you know, like you're disqualified basically, in my opinion. Um, it's like, you know, you, you show up to the swim meet and you have like flippers on. It's just like you've immediately lost your credibility. Um, and that be, because if your thing was to become money and there's someone, there's some individual that owns 20% of it because they created 20% at a cost of zero, that corrupts it permanently, I think, in, in, in the minds of all the, the potential kind of would-be adopters. And the, the really important thing about Bitcoin, that's why we always bang on about the Immaculate Conception, is that there is no way to create units uh, more cheaply than the market price. Like you can mine to get your, those new Bitcoins or you can buy them on the market. But miners are not able to mine at like a, a big discount to market price. They have to, they have to pay their way in hashes, you know, which, and like minor, mining is a competitive industry. So you can't really mine at a massive discount to market price. Um, so that's one thing. The other stuff I would say would be um, the um, elimination of, uh, of, uh, of monetary discretion in the system. So very, very few alternative uh, cryptocurrencies e um, 
are hardened against basically lobbying or the imposition of special interests. Um, so since these systems are big and you know they, they're worth billions of dollars and they move billions of dollars every day, uh, it's important that they be resistant to any economic interests which might seek to corrupt or change the protocol in a way that benefits them, which we call lobbying you know, in conventional politics. And the, the way to do that really is to uh, commit to having the system uh, have an initial configuration, you know, to have to enshrine certain values, like the way the Constitution enshrines certain values, and then stick to that. Uh, and then also the other way to do that is to have a good separation of powers, like you have in Bitcoin with the miners, developers, economic nodes, etc., uh, and to make the system very difficult, you know, resistant to change. And so I would say only Bitcoin enshrines that, um, the resistance to special interests, basically. Uh, and absolutely none of the competitors do. They can all be changed uh, arbitrarily. That's because the developers themselves have an interest in changing the system arbitrarily because they've sold it to investors as being innovative, fast-moving, move fast and break things, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, you know, their, their whole reason for existence is super paradoxical because they're, uh, you know, claiming that they're going to be able to implement technical changes much faster when really what you want is the opposite. You want the system to be very predictable, to enshrine uh, certain rules, um, to make certain values evident in the protocol specification and then to not tamper with that too much uh, because the stakes are extremely high, you know, in a money system. Uh, and if you, if you change the rules on people, you're, you, that could involve confiscating their hard-earned wealth and then no one's going to trust the system. So I'll, I'll take a break now, but yeah, that's, that's the main point in the article. Yeah, no, and I, I think that kind of the the line that you also had in there. Oh, and then I'll just read the 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 uh, the, the thought the um, the great sin in your article. You wrote the great sin of all coiners is not that they back the wrong horse, but they did so with insufficient conviction. They sold a dream that they themselves did not believe. And and you're you're you had a line in there as well as you kind of it's kind of talking about the devotion, right? I, I think that. Altcoins, they don't have the devotion from the get-go that's needed to kind of create like an evangelical population that Bitcoin had from the get-go. Um, and when the leadership, uh, their incentive is that, like you wrote, is to saddle their con uh, their converts basically with with you know their own sins. I guess if you want to look at this in a religious context, and it kind of creates an increasingly. And by their sins, I mean these coins that are that are, you know, they have to dump them on new people. And then, you know, as they, as they continue to lose value and this creates an increasingly disillusioned following. And I think that it, you're, you're correct that that's dooms the project um, from the onset. Whereas I think that I know not everybody has this, this belief, but I think that when you look at Bitcoin more as, as a religion in a way, and, and Giacomo Zucco had talked about this in a, um, in a, I think it was a, a panel. I can't remember a few months back, um, whereas Bitcoin is kind of more of a religion, a movement, whereas a lot of these altcoins are just kind of more like a cool app, right? You get excited about, um, but unlike a cool app that you use and just forget, now you're actually stuck 
with value that you've lost versus say just time spent on something like, you know, TikTok as it loses value or loses um, um, relevancy in your lives. Yeah, I actually don't love the religious analogy. And it's funny because I am using religious overtones in the article. I think that's because we don't have good words for what's going on. So we default to the nearest thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think the reason people call, you know, Bitcoin religious is because uh, it's a uh, very opinionated and idealistic uh, mass movement. And um, we it, like we don't almost don't have secular mass movements like that anymore. Uh, not in, you know, I don't know, not since like the progressive era in the twenties or something. Um, and so the closest analog is like, oh yeah, it's like a, a religious action. Um, but you know, I, I think it's like fine to, you know, bite the bullet and say like, we're motivated by, um, our desire to, um, instill certain values in a monetary system. And of course, it takes a lot of conviction um, and action to bring that and make it a reality. So it kind of cosmetically resembles religion, but it, you know, we're not making any metaphysical claims about salvation, <laughs> although uh, sometimes the, the language strays into that territory. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I sometimes think the religious analogy is a little bit of a cheap one. Uh, albeit um, probably the easiest one as well. Well, I I, I did a, a few episodes ago. I interviewed a, a guy named John Verveke, um, who is a um, works with cognitive science and, and psychology, and kind of focuses on. Um, well, anyways, he's put forward this this idea about that we currently, especially in the West, live in kind of a meaning crisis, right? Where the traditional institutions have, like you know. 50, 100 years ago, majority of people belonged to some sort of institutional religion. Um, they had, you know, the Elks clubs, they had the Rotary clubs, they had, you know, PTA meetings, whatever. There's a very um, centralized institutions that you used to kind of form community that you used to uh, get meaning in your life, whatever that may be, whether it's, you know, working to raise money to, um, I think the Rotary Club does a lot of stuff with getting, you know, glasses and stuff like that for for people that have uh, issues with um, with sight in the third world. Anyways, you know, like where you, that's where you find your meaning in a lot of these things, um, and also uh, families too. A lot of people are choosing to not have any kids or as few kids or whatever, and there's kind of that family unit involved. Where I think where the religious concepts are, are falling and his his idea is he, he's he's um uh he's a he practices buddhism but not in a religious way but as a secular way of using he calls them um um uh, psychotechnologies right meditation um ritualistic practices uh help to kind of bind people and kind of center them i guess in a way and his his idea where he thinks this is going to go is these kind of secular you know psycho using the psychotechnologies from these old uh institutions that we use and kind of using them more in a secular way kind of like you know the the mindfulness movement and meditation and where i think that bitcoin actually does fit quite well into that is that you know movements like this do give people a lot of meaning there's actually i mean we, we can see the ritual practices that we have right running your own full node um 
um, there, you know, there's, there's the holidays that we already have, um, the, that we practice every year and, and the kind of the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we have the Bitcoin pizza day. It's probably the biggest one, which is funny. And then, you know, we have the other days of, of, you know, like Hal's first tweet about it. Um, and, and, you know, the release of the white paper or whatever that we all kind of, you know, send out the obligatory tweets and stuff, you know, talking about it, but there's also the, at, you know, I, I I find that when I look at it through a religious sense, it makes a lot more uh, sense to me on how Bitcoin has grown and and you know the 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 kind of things that we see coming and you know just like even with just like a full node, you look at it as uh, wh where you are verifying kind of an objective truth in a way, and you're able to actually have that at you know at your right at your hands, like you can you can touch it, I guess, in a way, you know, touch your laptop or whatever you're running your note on. Uh, and where it's, it's very hard when you kind of look in other places around the world or in your life to kind of verify that, you know, the food that you have in your fridge, right? It says it's organic, but you know, unless you're actually going to that farm and you're watching them and everything like that, is it really organic? Is it, you're trusting someone that it's verifiable and, and that what you're consuming is what you thought you're consuming. Whereas with Bitcoin, that, I think it's a very powerful kind of meme and that you're you have at right at your hands there you're you're able to have a a piece of your life where you um are able to verify an objective truth by by running your own full node and the kind of it may be it, it may be kind of a a holdover uh, that we that we use the religious terms in it but I, I think that that is very much ingrained into the human experience and and uh I, I see a lot of uh, simpatico in Bitcoin with that. Yeah, I, I like that point you make about um, an objective truth. You know, those are certainly uh, few and far between these days, uh, especially as our our treasured uh, truth giving institutions have completely uh, become corrupt and unreliable. Uh, with the press being the main one, uh, and and through the lens of Bitcoin, it's all that much more clear. Uh, just how much they failed in their mandate, uh, you know, in the last decade, because they are unable to report um, accurately on Bitcoin. And it's like this amazing red pill. All these people that understand Bitcoin deeply, you know, look at how the, the, the mainstream media reports on it. Uh, and they realize that these journalists are, uh, you know, just kind of worthless uh, as, as, as truth givers. Uh, and and that editorial biases creep into every uh, every uh, you know segment of coverage, um, you know, including the coverage which is ostensibly news and independent. Uh, and you know, the funny thing is that you know by far the most critical and important thing about Bitcoin to me is like the auditability, whereby any individual very very cheaply can run a full node and. Uh, and verify not just that their inbound payment is legitimate and valid and not not counterfeited or anything, but also that every payment is valid, and by extension that every unit of system, of every unit in the system is valid and was created in the agreed upon way, and you know compare that to obviously, you know like fiat currency. There's absolutely no there's no mechanical way to do that. Even the government could not audit all the, the currency in circulation. Uh, 
you know, most hundred dollar bills are held outside the U.S. It, so, like, who knows what it's being used for? Um, the money supply is this like nebulous concept that the, the like the Federal Reserve barely has a handle on. Um, and then you compare it to gold, and it's like, well, you can probably audit an inbound gold payment that you're receiving. Uh, but even that, you know, actually authenticating gold is like very costly, and then gold ends up settling into these like these uh, these supply chains where every link in the chain is authenticated. Uh, because, you know, precisely because it is so difficult to authenticate it. Um, And then, you know, crypto Bitcoin developers are like absolutely uh, dogmatic about making, you know, IBD um, as, as, as low effort as possible. So making the auditing of the chain uh, possible for on a Raspberry Pi, for instance, and then Almost every other, you know, Bitcoin killer or blockchain 2.0, 3.0, whatever, immediately surrendered that. <laughs> they, um, they're like, yeah, let's trade off against the um, the verification, and let's buy some like better technical characteristics. And it like boggles my mind that the most radical, um, amazing feature. Of, of, you know, cryptocurrency, the, you know, the ability to audit the whole supply and ensure that it's valid and has integrity was immediately traded off by all of the competitors. Um, and, it, you know, it's not just like, oh, yeah, running an Ethereum full node is hard. Through Coinmetrics, we run full nodes for every chain uh, at top 50 or so in, in, uh, in triplicate at a minimum. There are some, you know, that shall remain unnamed that we have spent literal months trying to get synced up. And we're talking enterprise hardware, um, you know, really hardcore, um, you know, DevOps guys, and we can't get it to run. So auditing the thing is uh, literally, in some cases, impossible. And it's, it's amazing. It's like the one... The most precious feature of these kinds of systems, and the the creators of all the alternative coins surrendered that like almost right away. Well, uh, yeah, and there's also a, th- a gentleman on Twitter that that uh, has been documenting his own um, journey and headaches trying to run one of those, probably the same unnamed um, chain. Uh, trying to actually run a full node on it with um, I, I kind of I stopped following it after a while because it just seemed like it was con- constant issues um, in, in trying to actually get that to sync up. I and... think he, he actually finally synced it. And oh, did so he? Like, okay. Yeah. The, you know, Ethereum's not lost yet, but the, the ratio of, so you definitely need an SSD to sync an Ethereum full node and the ratio of like days to sync versus days of progress you get from one day's worth of sync is like one to eight, which is like catastrophically bad in my opinion. So like that means that if you have performant hardware and you spend 24 hours syncing the chain, that will only get you eight days worth of, uh, of validated blocks. So that's completely unsustainable in my opinion. But yeah, the, 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 
the coin actually that I was referring to was um, was EOS. Like running a full archive oh, node, gosh. the equivalent of a full archive node on EOS is until recently, until like a patch came out from block one, it was almost literally impossible. Uh, and my, if I had to guess, I would say like fewer than a dozen entities worldwide were doing that. And it has a bunch of, like EOS has a bunch of different transaction types and you don't get them from running the equivalent of a light client. You don't, you can't audit the like more exotic transaction types. So you have to run the full archive node to, to get the full picture of what's going on. And so we had a, you know, a period of time where, you know, probably half a dozen entities in the world were actually able to fully verify the integrity of the chain. Which is actually there was um, uh, BSV. I remember just seeing a thing on them where um, uh, Ryan Charles with Money Button, where they actually were just saying that they were no longer going to be able to. It was it was no longer economically viable for them to run their own node. Um, so they were basically just going to be, you know, once it gets to that point where you know, quote unquote, large players aren't able to do that, you're pretty much just trusting, um, you know, whoever, I mean, th there's really only a, a couple people within that chain that you're going to be trusting um, to that, which it seems dangerously centralizing to where, where you have a point where you have a, a couple people that have a majority hash and everyone is just following them and trusting that they are actually sending out true signals is exceedingly dangerous. Um, to me, uh, and I think yeah. to, to most people, uh, that that uh, the idea of just going, okay, well, we're just going to trust that you know that they are mining, you know, uh, genuinely, and everything that they're sending out is 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 true. Where you get to be tens of thousands of dollars just to run a node, um, you know, is just not not doable, and, and especially when it's one of the larger players on that that actual chain. Yeah, I, I think of BSV like as um, actually as a very welcome service um despite all the scammery and so on uh and it, it's welcome in the sense that they are empirically proving things that we knew to be true but had no empirical evidence of so you know like for from the period 2013 to 2018 um uh more technically minded folks would say big blocks are will actually destabilize your chain and you won't be able to come to convergence easily, and they'll benefit large miners, and they'll make val uh, you know verification very costly, and then, you know that that was never borne out on Bitcoin because we prudently kept the blocks pretty small, and then BSV went ahead and like did the like reducto ad absurdum where they actually went ahead and ran all these like completely wacky experiments and like showed for once and for all that like the small blockers were right, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like a 200 megabyte block is going to maybe cause a partition in the network because some clients are just going to ignore it uh, and others will try and verify it. And, you know, you're going to end up with tons and tons of stale blocks and orphans. And basically the convergence is not going to be guaranteed anymore. Uh, so, it, you know, in a kind of a scientific sense, it's interesting that we have this, this like horrible experiment so that we can know for good uh, that we were basically right.
Yeah, I just I I I, I don't understand that why you're running. You're going to spend thousands of dollars a month to basically validate mostly weather data, which I think, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. you know, and but I got into an argument with with one with them about that, and you know, they came up with, "Don't you think that in the light of the the lies about climate change that you know having verified on chain weather data is a good thing?" And I was like, "Well, you're still trusting whoever's providing you that data." to spit out that's um, actually amazing so so they looped like like climate denialism into the <laughs> into their their argument for like unbounded uh state growth yeah i guess so it, that's it's, hilarious. It's, it is really interesting because when you look at that chain um they have you know they've taken the position though too which is totally anathema to to bitcoin in that they're embracing regulation embracing you know, if a if a if a judge issues an order to a minor, that minor should have to you know follow it and you know do whatever, right? It just it seems to me then there's no point in have then just have a centralized um, a state currency then or whatever. There, there's no point in in having you know the the amount of energy expenditure to secure the network if a centralized authority outside of that community can just tell them what to do and then they're just gonna you know. Hop, you know, just jump to it and and uh, and abide by every every request. Yeah, I mean, they talk and... about the well, they talk about within Bitcoin, you know, the, the developers, you know, uh, the the conspiracy of the developers, and that's where the centralization is uh, in Bitcoin, and and um, the, you know, they're giving the miners the power, right? But you know, how, how is uh, you know, if if let's just say they were right, right? How is um how is giving giving the control of the network over to any world government uh, that wants to issue a court order uh, any better? Yeah, there, there's a kind of a, a startling lack of introspection, um, you know, because like, of course, there exist uh, potential centralization, centralization points in Bitcoin, but the community has always sought to mitigate those really aggressively uh, and has been pretty lucid about their existence you know, which is like plenty of Bitcoiners weren't happy that Blockstream was the dominant uh, kind of like political uh, center in Bitcoin for a long time. Uh, what's funny is that they are absolutely, their influence is much, much smaller just by virtue of the fact that the, most of the core developers do not work for Blockstream now. You know, they're, they're split apart. Um, the ones that are, you know, have subsidies are split between, you know, chain code, uh, the DCI, Square Crypto now as well, and a handful of other um, firms that employ core devs. So even on that axis, Bitcoin is incredibly well distributed. Like, you know, Blockstream absolutely does not have unilateral control. And like, you know, more to the point, you know, there haven't been any like harder soft forks in Bitcoin in like 18 months now, right? Uh, so even if there was like absolutely centralized political power from some entity in Bitcoin, clearly they have not been able to force through, you know, their nefarious schemes because it's so nicely poised. Uh, so yeah, it's funny, like Bitcoin's warts are so visible and and it's like uh, opponents will always have um, 
you know, very easy ability to criticize because Bitcoiners are so introspective and critical. Um, but like if you evaluate any of their projects by that same standard, they are horrifically bad. But of course, that's never the way that it's presented. You uh, to to jump into um, another topic was that uh, um, you wrote that that the supply cap is is critical to Bitcoin um, and and kind of just the uh, um, I think you're talking about it in ontological terms, but in other interviews um, I'd listened to one uh, a few weeks back and I can't remember exactly. I apologize, but you stated that you, you'd also be fine with kind of a small if a small inflation had been built in. But I was just wondering if you could clarify kind of your position on on the supply cap. And also, what are your thoughts on, you know, like Peter Todd has proposed maybe kind of this indefinite inflation to continue the minor reward um, to kind of solve this reward incentive for uh, continued network security. And it's something that I've I've been, you know, I think it's I think one of the good things about Bitcoin is that a lot of the, the, the problems that aren't problems yet, but will be problems later is that people are you know talking about these things and discussing them really early on and and uh, versus kind of you know behind closed doors and and uh, the the users aren't really aware of them so i think that's a a really good aspect of bitcoin but what what do you see as as a possible uh solution as well to to this this uh, problem of minor incentives in the future well first of all it's not even clear that it is a problem um uh, we don't know yet, really, um, because we've never had the chance to observe uh, what it would be like when uh, the the minor revenue is mostly fee-based as opposed to subsidy-based. My intuition, having thought about it a lot, is that we'll probably be okay assuming Bitcoin block space continues to be uh, highly valued, sort of high, highly coveted. Um, and, um, I think some of the fee sniping issues, uh, that were presented in a couple of papers, like the Narayanan paper can probably be technically mitigated if they're not already. Um, so my best guess is that it's actually not really a problem. Uh, and, and that right now we're probably overpaying for security because of the subsidy, um, although there remains work to be done to codify the the kind of strength of settlement assurances on Bitcoin for sure. And, you know, like if in 10 years when the subsidy is much less and fees account for a greater fraction of minor revenue, if there is no usage on Bitcoin and the fees are really low, then Bitcoin will be, will have failed anyway. Um, and if Bitcoin is very successful, I think there'll be no, no trouble uh, getting fees. And like one way to think about this is like, Imagine Bitcoin was a payments processing startup and, um, you know, like a wholly centralized startup, that startup would have charged a billion dollars just about uh, for payments processing. uh, And it's only 10 years old Um, because Bitcoin itself has charged users a billion dollars in dollar terms um, for transactions over the last decade. So by any yardstick, I think it's a very successful um, you know, payments processing system and, and it block space is highly coveted, even if we're in a bit of a lull right now. But I definitely think that the, the chain 
that ends up predominating is going to have a lot of usage anyway, just by virtue of its its dominant position. Uh, so, th- so that's my answer to that. Um, but, but to your more critical question, like, you know, how critical is a supply cap in Bitcoin? Um, you know, in the article, I said it's ontologically, uh, you know, essential. I think I don't remember the exact phrasing. Um, but I was trying to push back at these folks that say, well, you know, Bitcoiners are just going to change the cap. Um, and I think the model that I laid out at the beginning of the podcast, whereby we we disentangle Bitcoin into a protocol for conveying value and into a, a fair property rights system is very important there. So there's nothing about the protocol that requires, uh, like a protocol for moving money around on the internet that requires that the units of money are capped. That is, but that, however, was part of the specification of the property system to, you know, to make sure it was fair and there was no unpredictable inflation. And so given that Satoshi included it in the specification, I think it is critical, Um, you know, and like probably it's so critical that if the system changed, you know, we had a quote unquote revolution and we like deposed all the full nodes or whatever in the devs and we imposed a bunch of, you know, new inflation. I don't really think it would have continuity. I don't think it would be the same system anymore. It'd be something new. It would be like Bitcoin prime or whatever. So I, I consider that cap to be one of the like core values the same way that like the USA is founded on the core values of like, you know, strong individual rights, like the right to free speech, association, freedom of the press, you know, the right not to have soldiers quartered in your home unilaterally, uh, the, the, the strong uh, states' rights relative to the central government. Uh, and then, the, you know, I, so I, I would say the even though we haven't clearly codified what those essential founding values are, very unequivocally, the the supply cap is one of those values. Although we certainly need to do some more work to actually describe what the rest of them are. I mean, people clearly believe that Bitcoin stands for a set of things, um, but we haven't necessarily written them out yet. It's like more like the English Constitution, where it's like a patchwork of like documents, like that you have to like assemble together to find a coherent whole. Uh, but yeah, the, the most unequivocal kind of foundational value of the property system, you know, set up by Satoshi is that supply cap. So yeah, I, I think it's sort of inherent to the system. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, there, there's been other proposals where, you know, it's like a short term solution of, of, of basically coins that haven't moved, say within a specified time could be considered, you know, like the lost coins and that those could be recaptured um, and, and put back into basically the pool for to extend the, the minor reward, um, which I don't agree with at all. I think that just destroys, I think any of these changes that were, you know, like changing the supply cap or introducing inflation um, and especially the taking of old coins, I think just kind of, it, it's, it's a very much like a Dow um, sort of change where yeah where it changes changes the what bitcoin is and it changes the mindset 
of trust that you have in that system of, well, you know, if we can do this, because I think that was what obviously the reason, and you talked about that before, was the reason Ethereum leadership had to do that was because they knew once they moved to a proof of stake model, you don't want somebody out there that was a black hat who stole these coins uh, now has a massive, you know, pull on the on the system yeah. um, and a massive say in what happens. So it's understandable why they did that, I guess, if you look at it from their point of view. But I think what's if Bitcoin goes down that that route of of kind of changing these very kind of first principles that we have, I think it's very I think it's very dangerous. I think it's a critical, you know, attack vector on it. But then you have to weigh the trade-offs of, you know, if if you know, as you said, this may not even be an actual issue. So, it, but if it does end up being an issue, then we have to rate, you know, um, weigh the trade-offs. But I, you know, it just kind of, it, you know, it's it's almost physically bother bothersome to think about mm-hmm. doing this to Bitcoin, where you just kind of like you know, revile and kind of pull back and just kind of give a disgusting kind of look on your face, I guess. Um, Yeah, and I I was like, I was guilty myself of amusing about this recycling of old coins. But if you think about it in terms of like, what does a system, what is the system set up with by Satoshi um, about creating very strong property rights and assurances? What does that look like? It's one where your rights are absolutely sacrosanct. If you own the private key corresponding to a public key for an output, that's yours to transact with without interference. And if you look at the DAO uh, reversal, uh, that right was um, was infringed upon. You know, uh, maybe it was for like a good reason, quote unquote, but it was infringed on. And uh, the only other time that you could conceivably say that's happened in Bitcoin was when. There was this deliberate coordination to reorg out an inflation bug, which created like 80 billion coins or whatever. But, it, you know, the, the down hack was so notable because it was such a deeply political, uh, you know, uh, tampering with the property assurances. And the beneficiaries were, at, were the same people that were coordinating the alteration to the, to the ledger, to the list of who owned what. And that is the most like profound and obvious instance of like political discretion we've ever seen in a cryptocurrency, in my opinion. I mean, it's the most flavoring one. But yeah, like uh, creating a coin recycling uh, protocol would would also um, it would be a form of confiscation, and it would be impairing the property rights which people thought they had. So. I, I was like musing about it like half in jest, like not entirely that seriously. And people like really responded w- with like a lot of uh, invective, like really, really strong resistance. And like looking back on it, I realize now why they did. And, and I also realized that it was, <laughs> it's a, com- it's a complete non-starter because th- you want the rights to be like extremely strong. No, and I think, well, like I said, I think it's important that we do, you know, kind of muse about things like this because uh, to just throw things, to dismiss them out of hand without actually, you know, talking about them and and um, because things have a tendency to recycle in Bitcoin, um, you know, uh, arguments and 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 um, and solutions and things like that, and have a tendency to come back. Um, and I think it's really important to 
to talk about them because you know once you do you can kind of go back and like well we've had these conversations in the past and this is why right so that when someone in five ten years um is is you know bringing this topic up again you know we can kind of fall back on the the previously established kind of I guess the research and the thought processes that brought us to that. Uh, and the, the last question I wanted to ask you uh, with your article being, you know, a peaceful revolution, there's a, um, I can't, um, uh, I believe it was Murad um, had mentioned uh, in an interview about how gold um, kind of basically requires kind of this fire and brimstone end of the financial system uh, to, to be brought back. Whereas his opinion was that Bitcoin doesn't need that. So in your opinion, does Bitcoin need an apocalypse like gold to succeed? Or can it, you know, kind of like a mycorrhizal network spread across the system and kind of peacefully replace it before, you know, some sort of apocalyptic ending to the current financial system ensues? Yeah, I think one of the big myths about Bitcoin is that we have this apocalyptic nature to us. I mean, many Bitcoiners are uh, are like preppers as well, because they just happen to be very skeptical about the financial system, which with good reason, in my opinion, but uh, for sure, they're outside the mainstream on some of this stuff. And that gets conflated with Bitcoin itself, like as requiring somehow, uh, you know, these apocalyptic end times. And it makes us look like the cultists who are like, waiting for the Haley Bob comet you know, and waiting for the rapture, and then we'll be the ones that are selected on the day of the rapture, right? Um, but I, I don't think that's the case, you know, like, Bitcoin is gonna, if we're right, it's just going to keep growing and seeing more and more usage and credibility, you know, really regardless of the financial conditions, because there's always people on earth that are discriminated against, and whose monetary system doesn't work for them. Like, it, you know, maybe it's not in the U.S., but there's always people that are victims of inflation and the wealth confiscating effects. And it just so happens that we're living in a time when uh, things are super, super volatile, and the the it it looks like we might be ending entering like the end of the U.S. as like the the unipolar hyperpower, um, you know, under whose aegis the uh, monetary system had functioned peacefully for 70 years, it looks like that time's coming to an end. So you, you could be forgiven for thinking that we're going to enter a period of chaos. But that is not a requirement for Bitcoin to be successful. It just so happens that Bitcoin's growth is occurring at a time when the, the monetary and financial system is starting to degrade and people are, are, you know, it's being used as a political weapon more and more, you know, like SWIFT is like clearly being used for uh, policy objectives by the U.S. Um, you know, China and Russia want to uh, replace the dollar as the unit of, of international trade. Uh, and, 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 you know, and like a, even outside the dollar, like there's more and more like inflation events occurring because the gold standard is like completely obsolete. And so there's no, there's no way to keep states in check. Uh, and so you have all these, uh, these states that, uh, that enter these like horrible death spirals, which just like obliterate the savings of everybody living there. 
Um, but I don't think that's like an essential requirement for being like a Bitcoiner. Yeah, no, I think that um, I, I always find it really, you know, people in the West that, you know, when they when you talk to kind of, you know, the no coiner, the, the, the person that, that's only, you know, seen Bitcoin mentioned a couple of times and maybe they know their nephew had bought some and talked about it at one point, but where a lot of them just don't understand the importance of a sound financial network, uh, just because we, we have enjoyed a, a very prosperous time and they have never experienced a time in the, in their lives. Um, some, probably some uh, very, you know, like, grandparents um that are you know approaching their 80s or 90s would remember back in a time as a child when that actually was but those people are are you know vastly disappearing most of us have never experienced that you every time you go to the bank as long as you got money in the in you know in in your account you can pull it out no problem uh your credit cards go through every time it's not a big deal but when you actually talk to people um or go into uh, outside of the American tourism bubble, I guess, you know, kind of go out to these places that are, that are, have true poverty and have, you know, it's, it's very weird as Americans to think how de- you know, unstable the rest of the world is. I mean, you look at like in Thailand, I mean, they just recently had a military coup. I mean, somewhat recently, the idea of having something like that, you know, and, uh, and, or your, your, your banks don't work. You can't pull out your money or you're limited, you know, like in Cyprus to a few hundred dollars per day. It's just something that's totally alien to us. And we don't really appreciate how, how weak of a foundation our kind of normalcy is, is built on. And um, I agree. I don't, I don't think Bitcoin needs it. I think that Bitcoin is very, um, very synchronous with in history where like, you know, all the technology was there 20 years ago, really, to, to build this um, for the most part. Not I mean, not completely, but, yeah. you know, the majority of it was. And it was just a very synchronous period of history where Satoshi was working on and releasing this thing right as the last kind of meltdown um, was was occurring. And people kind of really got woke up, you know, not woke per se, but but woke up and got red pilled to to how fragile, fragile this system is. Yeah, it really is amazing that Bitcoin's first decade has also been the decade in which central banks misbehaved the most, probably in the history of human civilization. I mean, the the timing couldn't be more apt. It it like it really boggles the mind, actually. Like there there has been more money printing in the last decade than there's been ever. Like a, as a function of like the fraction of money supply, um, and, and like when monetary economists say. We're in an unprecedented territory and they like truly do not know what's going to happen. That's the time to freaking panic. You know, it's like, wait, even the like PhD Harvard MIT experts have absolutely no clue what's going to happen. The Fed is just playing it by ear. Um, you know, the, the outcomes are likely not good. We, like we don't know what they're going to be, but you could be forgiven for wanting to exit that system entirely. And safeguard your wealth in something else, which where you truly do understand the rules of the game. You know the contrast could not be greater between, uh, you know, trying to understand the the nature of a, of a dollar in a bank account and its relationship to the money supply versus a satoshi in your Bitcoin account and its relationship to the money supply. Like the, you know, and and the, when you think about folks that hate Bitcoin 
and uh, you know, love the, the the nature of the current system. It makes me think of like Roman citizens just before the fall. They're like, yeah, you know, we don't need spears or or weapons or anything. Rome, you know, Pax Romanica is going to persist for another thousand years, and our civil society is going to exist just fine, and we're going to be great. It's like the, this world is cyclical, and we're periodically plunged into chaos. It seems to me that we're in a particularly chaotic period, which actually hasn't even begun to, to show its true nature. So, yeah, like we, we seem like the outliers and the, the fringe right now, but I really doubt in 10 years we're going to look back on this time and be like, oh, yeah, those Bitcoiners, you know, we're just a little too paranoid. Everything worked out great. It's, and it's funny, too, because you see Bitcoin emerge out of like this last round and then the, just the insaneness of the central banks and the amount of money that's been created. And, you know, I, I think a lot of those people that, you know, kind of the Keynesians um, really are, are, you know, understand that this is, like you said, uncharted territory and recognize that this is a problem. And then what uh, what they've done um, is in 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 a hundred percent one eighty contrast to Bitcoin is well what's this invent a new monetary theory which says that this is actually fine don't worry about it and in yeah. fact don't you, love you can that? just do yeah MMT it's just it's amazing where it's like literally where, changing a, a theory to suit the facts <laughs> yeah that's that's well, always a kind of a sound uh, epistemic uh, practice. Well, it just kind of reminds me of, of, you know, like those, those doomsday cults where they, you know, come down and, and then they go, oh, well, actually, no, it's, no, it's not going to end now. Um, we actually realized that, that our, you know, our, our readings were a little bit off and actually we don't need to worry about it. We can just push it off. And when you have actually Paul Krugman starting to criticize um, uh, maybe, maybe the, this, uh, the, the idea of printing this much money is a little bit crazy. Um, I, I think you really need to give pause when when he's uh, actually sound you know sounds sane on the subject of of uh, of monetary theory and i think the reason why the uh, the keynesians so to speak feel so empowered is because the doomsday prophecies of the gold bugs did not come true in 2010 when you know it was discussed like Q, you know doing a bunch of qe that's when it, you know, gold buggery became extremely popular. And the idea was that we would have inflation or hyperinflation in the US. And then we didn't have that. And then, um, you know, there was a lot of like victory dances from the Keynesians to like, see, look, everything worked out great. We didn't have inflation. And they didn't realize that what actually happened was the velocity of money dropped because the QE did not have the desired effect of like stimulating the economy meaningfully. It just ended up parked in financial assets. Um, and it, but that's a little bit more obscure. Like it's more difficult to reason about that, you know, because the, uh, the impulse and then the outcome uh, were not clearly visible. Like it wasn't that evident that creating the money supply created all these distortions and like financialized the world and led to this like obscene inflation in financial assets and you know real estate and equities and bonds so you know it's a little bit tougher 
to put together the cause and the effect. And it, it hasn't, it's not even that obvious what the, the negative effects of that QE are, although you certainly feel it. Like you can just feel that there's been this, uh, this increase in income inequality and wealth inequality, especially if you are, you know, a millennial and you're renting your first apartment and you realize that you're not going to be able to buy a home, you know, on your salary until you're 40 or whatever. So you can feel the Cantillon effect, but it's a little bit harder to put your finger on it as opposed to saying, yeah, like the dollar has really directly depreciated by this amount. Well, I'd, uh, I'd like to thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday to come on. And um, how could people see what you're up to and, and get a hold of you? Follow me on Twitter. It's Nick, N-I-C underscore underscore Carter. Someone was squatting the Nick single underscore Carter account, I guess. Uh, I have a bone to pick with that guy. Um, that's really the main way. Um, and uh, you can find me on Medium as well. I write a lot. I think it's also, yeah, I'm not sure how you find people on Medium, but uh, I should be findable. Well, I'll have uh, links to your Twitter um, profile as well as uh, um, your, uh, well, to the Medium article that, that we were talking about in the show notes. So if you just go and you click on that that article, you'll be able to go up to the top and click follow and, and be able to uh, uh, follow everything that Nick writes. Uh, just go to didyouknowcrypto.com slash EP51. That's EP51 for episode 51. And once again, thank you so much. Thanks so much, man. Absolute pleasure. 